Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, and welcome back to the Egyptian History Podcast, episode 58, The Great Turnaround. In this episode, we delve into the early years of King Tutmose I, the third ruler of Dynasty 18, and the New Kingdom. Today's episode is brought to you by Cyrus Mariah, Colin Saunders, and Samuel Gurley, in gratitude for their donations to the podcast. Thank you for contributing, especially during the middle of a hiatus that we are now pleased to report is definitively over. The podcast is back on schedule, and the story of Egypt can continue. The year 1519 BCE was a big one for change. Amunhotep I, king of Upper and Lower Egypt and Lower Nubia, was dead. Behind him, he left a grieving widow and mother, an ailing grandmother, and one very fortunate brother-in-law. The late king had left no children behind him. If he had any, they all died before he did, leaving a vacancy in the succession. With no one of the male bloodline to inherit, the king had been forced to accept the only available solution. He turned to the husband of one of his sisters, a military commander named Tutmose, to take on the future kingship of Egypt. Tutmose had accepted, and for at least a year or two, had been the faithful heir of Amunhotep, learning the art of rule from one who had practiced it some twenty years. Once the great king died, Tutmos stepped neatly into the vacancy, with nary a hint of opposition to his succession. Well, there was one hint, but we'll get to that later. Amunhotep's burial marked the end of the 17th dynasty male lineage, which we call the Tawasid lineage. Although he belongs historically to the New Kingdom and the 18th dynasty, Amunhotep was still the grandson of Sekenenre Tau, patriarch of the Tausids, when they began their attempts to reclaim Egypt from the Hyksos. From Sekenenre Tau had come Kamosa, then Amos, and finally Amunhotep. Fifty odd years of Tausid authority that had won the War of Liberation, restored Egyptian supremacy over Nubia and Sinai, and even made small inroads into Canaan. The kingdom had returned from the brink of destruction, and then prospered. But now the Tawasid male line was gone, and new blood was in charge. You have to wonder if any of the superstitious among Thebes people wondered if maybe Amunhotep's failure to bear children and the passing of authority to a new male line meant that the gods had withdrawn their incredibly powerful support for the old royal family. Perhaps their line, and the good times they had overseen, were over. Well, not so fast, my friends. Tutmose may have been a newcomer to royal authority, but he was by no means a step backward. Furthermore, his claim to legitimacy was based on more than just loyal service. He was part of the extended family. Tutmose was married first of all to Amunhotep's cousin, a woman named Ames. She had already borne Tutmose a daughter named Hatshepsut, but the new king would need a male heir to continue the lineage. 
For that, he also married one of Amunhotep's sisters, a young woman named Mut Neferet. She would bear him the son and heir he needed to put his legitimacy on firm footing. This son was named Tutmos II, and with his birth the new king could breathe easily. The succession was assured, and down the line Tutmos II could be wed to his half-sister to ensure the continuity of the royal household for a few more decades. But I'm getting ahead of myself here. Let's backtrack slightly. The year 1519 marked the end of Amunhotep I and the beginning of Tutmos I. Aside from the death of the king, the city of Thebes was in a relatively good mood. The Egyptian kingdom was stronger than it had ever been, and the people could take stock of their new position in the world. This was a position of complete independence from outsiders. No more foreign rule, and no more insecurity. The country was safe and powerful once more. But all of this power had come about because a few determined individuals helped shape the course of the people's efforts. For all the thousands of labourers, warriors, and scribes who made the victory of Thebes possible, there were a few people whose influence shone the most brightly, beacons guiding the direction of the populace's work. One of these beacons, these leaders, now reached the end of their accomplished life. I'm not talking about Amunhotep I. For all his contributions to Theban prosperity, he was mostly a beneficiary of the success of others before him. No, the true architect of Thebes' current situation, the great leader who chose this moment to leave the mortal coil, was Amunhotep's grandmother, the absolutely fabulous Queen Ahhotep. Ahhotep had lived a hard life. Married to her brother at an early age, she had borne King Sekenen Reitau two sons, Kamosa and Amos. The family had lived through difficult times, facing the might of the Hyksos with the limited power of their tiny Theban kingdom. Then, Ahhotep had suffered tragedy. Her brother-slash-husband Sekenenre was slain, his body returned to her bashed, cut, and contorted in the agony of a brutal death. That can't have been easy to bear, but the queen rolled up her sleeves, so to speak, Egyptian dresses tended to be sleeveless, and turned her efforts to son number one. Kamosa took the reins of power and continued his father's war. Then, tragedy again. Kamosa died just five years into his reign. The queen, now thirty or so, had to act as a full-fledged regent on behalf of her second son, Amos. What stress she must have endured in those days! She juggled the daily burdens of administration, the knowledge of her kingdom's vulnerability against foreign threats, and the fear that little Amos might himself fall victim to illness, violence, or simple bad luck. How she coped with this we'll never know, but cope she did. And at last her efforts were rewarded. Amosa survived, thrived, and did what his brother and father could not. He triumphed. Ahotep knew the taste of victory, and she knew it belonged as much to her as it did to her son and his army. She had saved Thebes in its time of need, and guided the royal family back to countrywide ascendancy. In theory, Ahotep would then have enjoyed a more background role, as her son managed the affairs of the country for a few more decades. But he died just short of his 30th birthday, and the Queen Mother had to step up once again. At an age when she should have been taking things on her own terms, the matriarch was back at the helm, assisting her daughter Amosa Nefertari and her grandson Amunhotep I in their work of consolidating Theban power. It was now twenty years since Amunhotep took over, and in that time the triumvirate had achieved much. But just as Amunhotep was moving into genuine retirement, 
her grandson passed away, leaving her daughter in grief for the second time. Ahotep could console her daughter Amoza Nefertari with the example of her own life. The fact that she had lost two children and her husband was an object lesson in the power of the human spirit to endure. That loss, no matter how terrible or sudden, can be survived, and used to strengthen one's determination, grit and spirit. So as the sun rose over Thebes in the form of a new royal succession, with Ahotep's granddaughter married to the capable Tutmos, the Queen Mother could keep one thing in mind. It was her bloodline, the matrilineal line, which now gave Egypt its continuity. After 50 to 60 years of war, heartache, politics and stress, Ahotep emerged the final victor, the mother of kings, the founder of a dynasty. I hope she died with a smile on her face. She had earned that privilege. The queen was buried in a tomb west of Thebes, which is now lost. Last episode, I suggested that it was at Dra Abu al-Naga, near the tomb of Amunhotep I, but that is a mistake. The tomb I was referencing does belong to an Ahotep, but not this one. It is the tomb of one of the Queen Mother's various daughters, possibly a wife of Karmosa, who passed away early in the reign of Amos I. My mistake. Ahotep's coffin, which survives, wound up in the secret cache of royal mummies buried at Deir al-Bahari. But her mummy was lost, and the coffin was reused for a priest. What ignominy for a matriarch of her calibre! What injustice, what ill fortune, that such a formidable and accomplished person should lose out at the last hurdle on the road to immortality is a genuine historical tragedy. It falls to historians then, and to the modern public, to keep Ahotep's name alive. And if I have made any impression on you with her story, do remember it. I will consider that a small contribution to a legacy she deserves. The legacy of Ahotep was a blessing, not just for her family, but for Egyptian royal women in general. Highlighting and demonstrating the power that a capable woman could wield, and the effectiveness that she could achieve, Ahotep elevated her successors by her own example. Future generations now looked to the mother of the king as a font of power, a semi-divine figure, a symbol of the awesome power inherent in the female sex. Ahotep unwittingly set the stage for women to come to the forefront, as mothers, wives, leaders, co-rulers, and living goddesses. The queens of Dynasty 18 are some of the most famous and powerful in all Egyptian history. Names like Hatshepsut, Tia, Nefertiti, and Anxenamun come down to us in history through their deeds, but the ability to do these things, to take their initiative, was rooted in the legacy of their wondrous forebear. To the Queen Mother Ahotep, we salute you. With the old Queen Mother dead, and Amosa Nefertari now moving into retirement, a generational shift occurred. Just as the male line was passing to a new lineage, the Tutmosid, so too the feminine power passed to a new generation. Their names were Ames and Mutneferet, and they will become very significant players in the family legacy moving forward. So, Queen Ahotep was dead, Amunhotep I was dead, and Amosa Nefertari was in retirement. The male bloodline of the Taosids, passed from Sekenenre to Kamos, Amos and Amunhotep, was over. A new lineage had begun, the age of the Tutmosids.
step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Tutmos I settled into his new power relatively easily. Because Amonhotep had chosen him some time before he died, Tutmos did not have to worry about power struggles or backstabbing. He simply took the throne he had been promised, and carried on from there. As far as newcomers to power go, Tutmos was blessed with many advantages. His borders were almost completely peaceful, his cities were prospering after some 50 years of stable government, and the population was rapidly growing as political stability allowed for more stable agriculture and trade. People were getting wealthier, and that wealth helped families to grow. Effectively, things were rather good. The government was secure and unthreatened by any challenges. The army was strong and experienced from various campaigns over the last generation. And the gods seemed to be fairly happy with the way things were run. There were no natural disasters that we know about, and no catastrophes. The country was peaceful and prosperous, and the crown's authority was total, bolstered by servants and aristocrats who acted in the king's name because they based their wealth, their power, and their influence on that of their ruler. You'll note I do not include happiness in that list, because we will never know for certain whether the stability and continuity of Egyptian politics skewed more towards the benevolent, the oppressive, or the neutral. We may not know for certain, but the New Kingdom is a period when sources become more varied and detailed, and we start to hear other voices, voices which illuminate a few cracks in the edifice of the Egyptian state. One of these cracks appeared as soon as Tutmos settled onto the throne. As the Thebans adjusted to the passing of one monarch and the appearance of a new, word reached the court. There was a rebellion in the provinces. The rebellion against Tutmosis' rule flared up in Nubia around 1519 BCE. The warriors of Cush must have thought that this transitional period between kings was the perfect time to strike. With all that politicking going on in Thebes as the succession was decided, it would be some time before the Egyptians could marshal a response. Perhaps now was the moment to expel the hated northerners. No such luck. Tutmos was a military man before he took the throne, and his talent skewed in that direction. Furthermore, he had vested interest in keeping Cush or Nubia under subjugation. Half of the wealth that was making Thebes so prosperous and the royal family so popular was taken from Nubia. From gold mines, slaves, and farmland, the Egyptians were leeching the wealth of the country to fund their cultural and political renaissance. On top of that, Tutmos's predecessors had invested heavily in building fortresses and funding an occupation of the country. Would the new ruler give up decades of hard work just to avoid fighting? I think not. The king appeared in Nubia in record time, leading a flotilla of troop transports. He was there in person, and he was ready for a fight. We don't know much about the Nubian attack, but really they probably did not stand much of a chance. The Kushite army was not exactly in its prime. Campaigns by Amunhotep I and Amos had cut down generations of warriors, and these rebels were but a shadow of their ancestors' power. Against the semi-professional royal army? Well, 
things did not look too good for them. What's worse is that these provincial rebels probably wound up fighting some of their own countrymen, Nubians who had chosen to serve in the Egyptian army as mercenaries rather than suffer enslavement or death. Used as elite bowmen and often in the vanguard of the assault, the Nubian mercenaries were a formidable, essential component of the Egyptian army. For the enemies of the king, such a force was formidable indeed. Tutmos I and his army advanced quickly, hoping to meet the enemy before they could cause too much damage with their raids. Egyptian scouts sought the foe out, while the army set about preparing itself for a pitched battle. When this battle arrived, it seems to have been a bit one-sided, or, from the Egyptians' perspective, short and sweet. It was short because Tutmos I himself got involved directly, riding his chariot into battle and engaging with the enemy in person. As a morale booster for his allies, and a psychological weapon against his enemies, what could be more effective than the king of Upper and Lower Egypt, the son of Re, the Horus of Gold, the mighty bull of Thebes, raging against them in his chariot? This kind of event is pretty damn rare in Egyptian history. Over 3,000 years, you can count on two hands the number of eyewitness accounts which testify to a king of Egypt actually wading into the fray himself. Under normal circumstances, we would doubt that Tutmos did anything more than stand on a nearby hill and watch the affair from a safe distance, but in this instance, we have proof. Among the Egyptian soldiers was a special man, a commander of troops and a veteran of many wars. His name was Amos Ibana, and since the days of King Amos, he had fought, marched, and plundered on behalf of the kings of Egypt. He had killed foes in single combat, given captives to the ruler, and been rewarded personally for his service. Now, Amos Ibana was serving Tutmos, and he was a witness to a rare moment in history, a dramatic conflict between two rival leaders. The story goes like this. The Egyptian army met the Nubian rebels on a field of battle. Spearmen and archers served on both sides, the classic lineup of ancient armies. But the Egyptians wielded the power of chariots, horse-drawn battle platforms that were a deadly mix of speed, mobility, and firepower. Tutmos himself charged onto the field in his chariot. The king wielded bow, arrow, and javelin, while a soldier next to him helped to steer the chariot and find him worthy opponents. The king's chariot ran back and forth as the Egyptian cavalry sought weaknesses in the enemy line. When they found them, they would race forward to strike. Tutmos and his driver were in the thick of it, arrows flying about them, spearmen surging back and forward nearby in the relentless crush of ancient infantry fighting. This was dangerous territory. The king had his bodyguards around him, but there was nothing to be done about stray arrows or a well-placed shot from an enemy archer. If the king was in the thick of it, his life was not safe. Perhaps that's the way he liked it. Amos Ibana was in the fighting on this day, and he describes for us the moment when the king came face to face with his rebellious foe. The Nubian chieftain had appeared in his sights, and the king's chariot leapt forward to find its foe. Amos Ibana recalls the moment, quote, His majesty became enraged like a leopard. He shot, and his arrow pierced the chest of that Nubian foe. The rest, wretched, turned to flee, helpless before the king's Uraeus. A slaughter was made among them. End quote. Tutmos was not doing this by halves. He led his troops from the front line and slew the enemy leader in a one-on-one -on -one fight. It was a magnificent shot, and the effect was immediate. Bereft of a leader, the Nubians began to withdraw, 
Soon, as word spread throughout their army, the retreat became a rout, and the Egyptians pounced on their fleeing foes. This was hardly good chivalrous fighting of the sort imagined by Homer and the medieval writers. It was ugly and to the point. While both armies might suffer only a few casualties in battle itself, if one side turned and ran headlong, they could expect a swift pursuit and a much bloodier end. For Tutmos, this kind of one-sided battle was more than satisfactory. It was proof of the Egyptians' strength and their favour in the eyes of the gods. As the enemy commander fell, the Egyptians surged forward and the Nubian resistance fell apart completely. In the work of one savage day, the rebellion was crushed. After the battle, the army of Tutmos celebrated, plundering the enemy camp and tallying their victory. They took as slaves those who surrendered, slaughtered those who did not, and collected the severed left hands of the enemy dead, so that the scale of the victory could be accounted. For every enemy that he slew in single combat, an Egyptian soldier could expect reward in the form of slaves, gold, or royal recognition. Amosibana, veteran of wars led by Tutmos, Amunhotep, and Amos, had racked up many of these severed hands in his career. By this point, he was among the top ranks of the Egyptian infantry, a battalion commander on land, and a ship commander on the water. But even veteran warriors reach their limits. The Nubian campaign is the first campaign recorded by Amosibana, in which he did not kill a foe in single combat, or take a living prisoner. It seems that the old warrior was at last beginning to slow down. The army boarded their troop transports on the River Nile. The fighting was done for now, and they could return home in victory, already anticipating a warm reception from friends and loved ones. All but Tutmos. He was already looking to the future, to other campaigns in Nubia and elsewhere. Busy-minded, the king began his preparations. As the Egyptian flotilla rowed back down the Nile, the current taking them swiftly back to safer lands, Tutmos's flagship led the way. At its prow, the flagship bore a grisly trophy, the body of the enemy chieftain. Hanging upside down, arms dangling towards the water, the body of the Nubian leader was a fearsome trophy indeed. Perhaps the king's arrow still pierced its chest, a clear message to all not to challenge the power of Tutmos I, king of Egypt. As trophies and warnings go, you can't get more effective than that. The king returned to Thebes around December of 1519. The floodwaters of the inundation were now receding, and the soldiers were sent back to their homes to begin planting the next year's crops. Before they left, the king parceled out the booty, gold, cattle, and slaves, so that the soldiers who had killed enemies in combat, or made spectacular deeds on the battlefield, could go home substantially wealthier than they had been. The king was richer too. His victories had brought back plunder for the royal family, and most of it went into the royal treasury, the main financial storehouse of the crown and the extended family. The rest went elsewhere, some to the generals or loyal officials, and the rest to the coffers of the most important institution besides the treasury, the great temple of the god Amun, the temple of Karnak. Donations to the gods after success in war were a long-held custom, and Tutmos did not shirk his duties. He gave stolen Nubian wealth to the temple, 
and ordered that his architect should begin some new building projects at Karnak. We'll talk about those another time. Suffice to say, Tatmos I ended the first year of his reign on a positive note. There had been a successful campaign, the king had proved his valour in battle, and the army and priests were satisfied with handsome profit. Everything was coming up Tatmos. The king must have been eager to continue his successes, for no sooner had January of 1518 arrived than he began planning a new campaign. Either he had the fire in his blood, or he just couldn't be happy sitting around at home, because this would be the second campaign in two years, and the second of four over just ten years of rule. Perhaps he was a man with itchy feet, for as soon as the planting was completed and the crops were growing, he called the soldiers up again. His flagship set out from Thebes and began to collect the battalions together as the king made his way out of the capital. Not to the south, though. Nubia was pacified and humbled. This time the king's target was somewhere more mysterious, somewhere less commonly explored. Tutmose was going to Canaan. Canaan, called Rechenu in the Egyptian tongue, had been visited by Amos many years before. But Amos had merely sacked a couple of towns, and focused on his quest to destroy the last bastion of Hyksos' power. He had waved his spears, destroyed a few objectors, and then returned home when the job of slaughtering Hyksos was completed. So Canaan was still mostly unexplored territory for the 18th dynasty, and Tutmos was going to rectify that. The cities of Canaan slash Canaan had grown a lot since the days of the Middle Kingdom. They were now fortified bastions of independent communities and principalities, ruling their own affairs and beholden to no one. To the east, the once mighty and threatening power of Babylon had been extinguished, first by a slow decline, and then by a lightning attack which destroyed the great city itself. Babylonian power was gone, and the void they left behind was slowly being filled by new groups who divided the old Mesopotamian kingdom amongst themselves. But those groups could not extend power over Canaan or Sinai like the Egyptians could, and when Tatmos arrived in the region, he found an area ripe for the taking. Tatmos' arrival must have been completely unexpected, because he swept through Canaan and didn't have to fight a single battle. The local city-states gave him tribute willingly, promised loyalty, and let him on his way. For this surrender, we shouldn't judge them too harshly. It had been 25 years, a whole generation of time, since Amos I had invaded, and his visit had been brief, purposeful. By the time Tutmos arrived, the local princes must have decided that the earlier campaign was a one-off, and that the Egyptians would leave things as they had always been. They would send traders up the coast, keep hold of the copper mines in Sinai, and occasionally slaughter some Bedouin. I doubt many in Canaan expected that they would appear, suddenly, armed to the teeth and ready for a fight. If the princes of Canaan were caught unawares, well, we can't really blame them. Tatmos advanced with frightening speed. One by one, the cities of Canaan fell to his power. No mess, no fuss, just good old-fashioned submit or die. It seemed almost everyone chose to submit. But even Tatmos could not advance forever, and eventually he reached a natural border, a point where the Egyptians decided enough was enough. This was a good place to turn back. The new border was a mighty river, the likes of which the Egyptians had never seen before. It is a river that we call the Euphrates, and it is one of the two rivers which defined the land of Mesopotamia, the country between rivers, the home of humanity's oldest cities and civilizations. Tutmos was at the western border of Mesopotamia, near the southern border of Turkey, 
a new land for him and his army. Before them, the mighty river stretched from north to south, its current deep and wide. Behind them, Syria was subservient, and Canaan had been subjugated. It seemed there was nowhere else to go. Beyond here was a land of mysteries. The Egyptians were hesitant to explore further. Which is fair enough. It's a big river, and not easily crossed. On top of that, the Euphrates had a certain feature that was a bit confusing to Tatmos and his comrades. Unlike their own river Nile, the Euphrates flowed out of an immense mountain area, the Anatolian highlands. And unlike the Nile, which wound its leisurely way south to north, the Euphrates flowed in the opposite direction, from Turkey in the north all the way to the Persian Gulf in the south. For the Egyptians, this was a baffling sight. Tutmos and his countrymen christened the Euphrates the Wedjeb Iteru, or Inverted Waters. An interesting name, reminding us of how the Egyptians saw their country and their river as the centre of the world, the gold standard by which all others were measured. When a river like the Euphrates revealed the variety that was out there, and thus broadened their horizons, they got a bit nervous about the whole thing. So Tutmos and his company decided that these inverted waters were more than enough, thank you very much, and turned around for home. But not before a little bit of fun. After setting up a stone stealer to commemorate the limits of his expedition, Tutmos decided to take the scenic route home. He and his army followed the bank of the Euphrates for a while, through grassland country, and indulged in a spot of the most classic of royal hobbies, hunting. The lands next to the Euphrates, called Nii in Egyptian, used to be home to wild elephants. For the Egyptians, this was some good new sport. Egyptians didn't tend to hunt elephants. They got their ivory from hippopotami and from trade with sub-Saharan folk. For Tutmos, the prospect of an actual elephant hunt must have been too good to pass up. We don't know how many elephants Tutmos slew, if any, just that he participated in this activity. Oddly enough, his biographers, like Amozibana, are completely silent on the issue. You would expect them to take any opportunity to praise the king and flatter him, but they say nothing. Perhaps Tutmos was a better warrior than he was a hunter, though if he was able to kill a chieftain by bowshot, you would think he and his fellows could hit an elephant. But I guess he would not be the first king to excel in war and fail in hunting. The first dynasty ruler, Hor Aha, was famously killed during a hippopotamus hunt, and massive animals are harder to kill than soft humans. So if Tutmos failed in his elephant hunt, I'm sure it wasn't for lack of trying. Anyway, as he was traipsing down the Euphrates, and just before turning back towards Canaan, Tutmos was suddenly and unexpectedly met with resistance. Not from the Canaanites, or even the Syrians, but from a people living across the river. A people who came from far away, but who had designs on the Syrian lowlands and all the peoples therein. A people who did not take kindly to some upstart ruler from a kingdom far away, invading their desired lands. These people were called the Matani, and they formed a strong kingdom in what is now northern Iraq. They were of Iranian descent, and they were not to be trifled with. The Mitanni are a curious people. Not a lot is known about them yet. Compared to their Syrian and Egyptian neighbours, they were most unusual. They spoke an unusual language called Hurrian, which comes from Armenia and the Caspian Sea region. They worshipped Vedic gods, aka gods who now belong to the Hindu pantheon, and they just sort of appeared in the area of Syria without much preamble. Archaeologists are still determining their roots and bases. Unfortunately, current events in Syria and northern Iraq are sort of ruining that. 
Maybe one day we'll know more, but today is not that day. Tutmos was enjoying his elephant hunt in the Syrian lowlands when he stumbled upon a large army of the Mitanni kingdom. Why they were there is uncertain, but the most likely options are that they had heard of Tutmos's presence and were there to ward him off, or they were planning their own invasion of Syria when they just happened to run into the royal Egyptian army. Either way, it went badly. The two sides clashed violently and furiously near the river Euphrates. This was a harsh and vicious battle because both sides were armed to the teeth with chariots, archers and infantry. We don't know how many died, but Amozibana was present and he tells us of his exploits. Quote, I was in the van of our troops, and his majesty saw my valour. I brought a chariot, its horse, and him who was in it as a living captive. When they were presented to his majesty, I was rewarded with gold. End quote. Perhaps my reports of Amozibana slowing down were exaggerated. It seems that he did pretty well in this battle, disarming an enemy charioteer. No easy feat, and in the middle of pitched battle at that. The Egyptian took his captive back to the king's lines, and did so without losing the prisoner, the chariot, or the horses. Very impressive, marking him out as a victor. The king claimed a victory against the Mitanni, but really it was more of a draw. Both sides withdrew from the river in good order, heading back to their territories to take stock of the situation and lick their wounds. For the Egyptians, this battle had probably been something of a shock. The Mitanni were absolute newcomers to the world stage, and now they were already armed heavily and preparing to invade Syrian lands. Tutmos would have to reevaluate. Any dreams of carving out a Syrian empire to go along with his Nubian possessions would have to wait. The Egyptians needed a bit more time. The king and his army began their trek back down through Canaan, heading for home. Their journey was uneventful, and they arrived back in the land of the Nile around the middle of 1518, just in time for harvest. Their donkeys were loaded with the tribute of Asia, the spoils of battle with the Mitanni, and the soldiers carried with them tales of the inverted waters, the great turnaround, the Euphrates. These men had become more than soldiers. Through Tutmose's efforts they had become adventurers, explorers in the name of the king, and their efforts had kick-started the Egyptians' dream of dominating, ruling, and owning the lands of Canaan. Tutmos himself arrived back in Thebes to good news. His second wife, Mutneferet, had borne him a son, Tutmos II. He already had a daughter, Hatshepsut, and now had a son, so the family line was secured and the legitimacy of his rule was strengthened. The king was sitting pretty. The Egyptian army was victorious, and Tutmos I could enjoy the rest of his second year on the throne in comfort. Such good circumstances required some gratitude to the ones who made it all possible. No, I'm not talking about the people, I'm talking about the gods. No king could afford to ignore divine input, and the victories over Nubia and Canaan were clearly due to the benevolence of Thebes' great gods, Montu, the lord of war, and Amun, the hidden one whose power informs all things. Tutmos spent the rest of year two devoted to these lords, putting his chief architect onto the task of making additions to the temples of Thebes. Plans were drawn up, funds were allocated from the campaign booty, and craftsmen were called into Thebes to put the elaborate plans into practice. They began to flock into the city, and to the great temples, the temples of Karnak and Luxor, in order to make the king's vision a reality. If I could, I would explore all of this in this episode. But time is short, and I wanted to get this episode out on schedule, rather than delay it just to have some additional length. So, 
we will be back in two weeks with a part two. We will meet the men and women who made Thutmose II's reign possible, and helped to shape Egyptian and Nubian society in the days when the king was traipsing up and down on his expeditions. Join us next time for part two of the reign of Thutmose I, and some very interesting developments in Nubia, and a little old place called the Valley of the Kings. See you soon. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.